0: Uh, this is a News Radio 1440 podcast. Good evening everybody and welcome to the Situation Room here on Tactics where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. Thank you so much for being with us on the program. I know that we're significantly later than we normally are. I apologize. Frankly, it's a miracle that I'm even sitting vertically right now. It's uh, been a very, very busy week over here with my other job at Faulkner and so uh wasn't able to do a show on Tuesday, had a conference I had to go to. There was a, a meeting that actually lasted well into the night. Uh we're just trying to get everything situated over here and getting everybody, you know, it's it's time for students to start coming in and there's a lot of preparation that goes with that. So been a little bit unavailable on that, but we do have the latest news, and I did want to go ahead and give you your coronavirus update, do at least one show this week, get get it on the radio, everything. So we're gonna go ahead and jump into that right away. So, uh as you can see, these are the latest numbers from the Alabama Department of Public Health on the coronavirus. You can see right here uh if we can bring that up. There we go. So, you can see the stats here and you can see the uh the makeup of the counties that we have 92,402 cases for coronavirus confirmed in Alabama. We have 1,654 deaths there have been to date 736,594 tested. And as of today, since they've, you know, put the new system in place, there are currently 11,313 hospitalizations and 37,923 presumed recoveries. So that is the status of everything in the state of Alabama as of right now as far as the the uh, as far as the stats go this actually was a pretty good week and this is a pattern that we're actually going to look at a little bit later in the program that has sort of been uh, become common to some of the southern states and because a lot of people were very scared that there were some big spikes in the the recent month and it looks like they are starting to subside and so that is coming you know Really recently, that's a trend that is just now starting, and we'll see that there is a little bit of a downward trend on things like cases, which everybody seems to talk about. Nobody seems to be talking about hospitalizations or deaths anymore, uh, I think largely because they've moved the goalpost and made it all about cases and how many people actually get the virus, and seemingly are, are fairly unconcerned, which is kind of surprising, and I guess it's because they can't use these numbers really to push a political narrative when it comes to things like deaths and hospitalizations. So we'll go ahead and dig in to some of those uh, questions right now. And the fatality rate continues to, in the Yellowhammer state, be fairly low. They got a little bit better this week, only marginally better. But, you know, it's it's been roughly the same as it has been for the past couple of weeks. But considering our deaths are down, that our cases also went down a little bit, that means that the fatality rate is even if it does continue its downward trend, which has been trending downward for a while now, if the cases start going down along with the deaths, that fatality rate is not going to drop nearly as quickly as we have been accustomed to in the past several weeks. Because you can remember just a couple months ago, we were all the way at like the fatality rate of this thing being five, which I said way back then, there's no way that's actually the real fatality rate. It's because there's a whole bunch of people with cases That are not actually being diagnosed and and not getting the tests. And so they have coronavirus and are not dying from this and are asymptomatic. And so once you do the math, and uh, as we said last week, the real figure is probably about 0.18, and it stayed pretty much the same as that this week. It didn't drop very much. And so uh, in the past, though, we've seen that fatality rate start plummeting very quickly because our cases were skyrocketing and our deaths they were going up or down maybe a little bit, but they were staying roughly static. And so when that happens, your fatality rate is necessarily going to get a lot lower because you've got a lot more new cases, not that many more deaths. But now that the cases and the deaths are both on a downward trend, you're probably still going to see that fatality rate drop unless the, the cases start dropping at a much more dramatic rate than the deaths. However, we're not going to see that drop happen nearly as quickly as we have in the past. So let's go ahead and look at some of these stats. Let's look at some of the new coronavirus cases and how we compare with last week. So we'll go ahead and bring that up. You can see that there. Okay. So these again are stats that I'm getting from the Alabama department of public health. So you can see here when it comes to new coronavirus cases, our seven day average for this week, is one thousand four hundred and fifteen. So that is July thirtieth through the uh, for through August the sixth. So today, it is one thousand four hundred and fifteen. Our previous seven-day average for last week, one thousand five hundred and forty-three. So a, a little bit of a drop, not a huge drop, not dramatic numbers or anything that is really you know worthy of writing home about, but a decrease of one hundred twenty-eight. That's You know, not bad, really. I said that it's not dramatic, but think about this: if if we're averaging 128 less people getting the virus a day, even if that rate just continues to go, like if we just had 128 less people getting it next week, that would still be a pretty big deal. And so, because of that, I I mean, you have to look at it and say, yeah, we're we're trending in the right direction. That is something that is beneficial. Uh, last week, as I said, when we did the report, last week was a pretty bad week, and so we're starting to return to a trend that we had seen probably about a month ago, and and we're starting to trend downward, at least that seems to be where the projection is going right now. Hopefully, that does stay in place, so what we're going to do now is I want to go ahead and look at our 21-day average for cases, because remember... 21 days ago is when the mask mandate went into effect, and so this is to compare the effectiveness of the mask mandate to the time before we had a mask mandate. Remember, this is a week where we're going down, so the numbers you would think would be improving, and they actually are improving, there's not as stark a contrast as they were last week, but you can see here that even with This week being a good week, the the past two weeks have made such a big difference. That is something that is insurmountable because the 21-day average, so July 16th through today, August 6th, this is since the mask mandate has been put into effect, the seven-day average for new cases is 1,583. The 21-day average for the 21 days before the mask mandate was put into effect, 1,305. So there was actually an increase of 278 since the mask mandate has been put into effect. And the first week that this thing came out and we were looking at the stats, it would be totally understandable to say, well, we've got to wait and see for it to take effect because this disease does have an incubation period. It does have an incubation period of 2 weeks and so those stats tend to lag a little bit in time as to whether or not one of these policies would be effective or not. Well now we're a, an entire week past the incubation period and we're still seeing numbers like this to where we actually had less new cases per day before the mask mandate was put into effect than after it. Now, I don't think that this necessarily means that masks do not work. But it certainly proves that mask mandates do not work, mandating it and forcing people to do so. And again, the statistics actually show that the vast majority of Americans, regardless of what state they reside in, because I've seen studies that do it nationwide. I've also seen studies that look at it state by state. The vast majority of Americans started masking up before the mask mandates were put into a place. And this is one of the reasons that I say the mask mandates are ridiculous, because people will make their own decisions and they'll make, you know, more or less good decisions on their own. The mandate has been proven across the board state by state to not work. Maybe masks work, maybe they have some effect, maybe there is some benefit or they offer some safety. But the fact remains that just looking by the numbers, it is very, very crystal clear that mask mandates most certainly do not work. And you can see that by the numbers, even when you're just looking at cases, even if you're ignoring the deaths, just looking at cases, which is what masks are primarily designed to do. That's what they're supposed to be preventing. The numbers just don't add up. The mask mandate is simply not working. So let's go ahead and look at the uh, hospitalizations for this week. So if you look there, new hospitalizations in the state of Alabama, Uh, We have our seven-day average. Again, this is just this past week, 178 new hospitalizations per day. And remember, this is after they put the new system into effect where hospitals do self-reporting on this. The previous seven-day average, 153. So actually, we have an increase of 25. So not a gigantic increase, not a super scary increase per se, but there is an increase in hospitalizations. This week. So, unfortunately, in a week where basically everything trended the right way, hospitalizations was the exception to that. We do have, unfortunately, more hospitalizations this week than we did last week. Now, why is that the case? I really couldn't tell you. And frankly, I don't even have a guess on this one. Normally, even if I can't point to something specifically, I have a pretty good guess, an educated guess. Anything that I could do on this one would be sheer speculation, so suffice it to say right now, all I can do is report the news to you and say that there is an increase of 25. It's not a gigantic increase. It's not something that should cause us to go into panic mode, but our hospitalizations are up. And considering that our cases were up, because again, I said we had a really bad week last week, that actually makes sense. So uh, the, the cases being up last week translated into hospitalizations being up this week, And we're probably going to see the same effect that we may even have a little bump in deaths next week. Now, the trend that we've been seeing is that hospitalizations don't necessarily equal deaths. And that's been a trend that has been going on for roughly about two months. And that's frankly just a credit to our medical community because they have gotten better at treating this thing. They've learned some tricks like rolling people on their stomach may actually work better than some of the other treatments that they've been doing. Uh, we we've gotten better with treating the drug, uh, treating them with drugs. So treating them medically, that kind of thing. And so the, the fact that the deaths have remained low is, is partially because despite there being more hospitalizations of this thing overall, our treatment has improved. So if I had to guess, there'll be a little bump in deaths next week, which will be from that big spike in cases two weeks ago, cases, hospitalizations, then deaths but i doubt it's going to be gigantic because our our big increases in hospitalizations have not necessarily translated to big increases in deaths over the past few weeks and and again it's only a 25 per day increase so a little bump but not a giant bump even if you ignored the fact that our treatments have gotten better so let's go ahead and look at deaths because that is of course the the most important i think you could even make an argument for the only important stat if you're actually looking at it long term so the new deaths for covid 19 in the state of alabama the seven day average for this week 19.7 the seven day average for the previous week 22.7 so again compared to last week on deaths we're actually doing good we may see a bump in deaths next week but for right now we're actually trending in the right direction this is a decrease of three so not a giant decrease, but considering we're dealing with such small numbers here, like our, our average for the previous week is barely in the low twenties, decrease of three is nothing to sneeze at. Not gi- you know, not ginormous, but certainly something worthy of note. Let's go ahead and look at the twenty-one day averages now. Remember, this is the mask versus the no mask period. So, since we have in, uh, since we have been mandated to wear mask by Memal Ivy the 21 day average for June or sorry July 16th through August the 6th has been 21.6 the previous 21 day average from June the 25th to the 16th when the mask mandate was put into effect so before we had the mask mandate 15.2 So that's a decrease of 6.4, or sorry, an increase, an increase of 6.4 since the mask mandate has been put into effect. So whatever the mask mandate is doing, it's not preventing cases and it's not preventing deaths. In fact, both of those stats are going in the opposite direction. And remember, this has been in place for three weeks now, well past the two-week incubation period. So, regardless of of how you feel about the mask mandate, whether you think it's a good idea or not, you can't argue with the fact that it's not effective. That that's just the way that the numbers played out and and I made a commitment before I even started crunching the numbers that I will follow this wherever it leads, even if it doesn't prove my point, even if it seems to show that the mask mandate is working even though I would question whether or not that is actually the reason. I would I'd question the cause and effect of that that I would report the numbers regardless, but the numbers actually back up the idea that the mask mandate just doesn't work. That's how the numbers came out. And so, if all of a sudden we get numbers that show something else, I'll showcase them too. And, and you know, we'll, we'll go through that when we come to it, but the numbers simply do not back up the idea that the mask mandate is doing anything to prevent cases or deaths or hospitalizations. Like I said, those are actually increasing this week. But... Ultimately, as I said last week, this doesn't prove that masks don't work. It proves that mask mandates don't. But I did want to kind of go to this because the mask mandate has been sort of a, a political flair, as it were. In other words, when a state or a city or whatever, when they do evoke a mask mandate, when they put one on the books and require people in certain places to do so... So far, I mean, just generally speaking across the country, that's almost seen as a signal to everybody else of, weirdly enough, the political left. Like, this is how progressive we are. (laughs) This is how woke we are. Again, it doesn't make any sense how somehow this thing became a politicized argument because data is data, but this has become some kind of sign of solidarity with the left and i do not understand that it's become almost a uh steve dace actually coined this so i'll give him credit for this he said it's basically a religious totem at this point it's it's almost like people who wear crosses around their neck that uh, this became in a lot of ways not for everybody but for some people this became like a symbol of how on board with the message that you are, that it became much more of a virtue signal than something you do actually because the numbers put it up. And sort of as a result of all of that, to sort of try to to prove their point, what the left has been doing, and by the left I mean the media because those two things are just interchangeable at this point, the media has been peddling this propaganda, this lie, that red states, Republican states with Republican governors... They have been completely botching this. They've been stumbling through it. It's been awful. And then people in blue states have been handling this very well, and they've been continuing to try to peddle this. So I want to sort of dig deep into this, into the ideology behind this. I do think it's interesting that uh, basically the argument has become if you oppose a national standard on masks, that it's because you hate people and want them to die. I've seen countless political pundits on the left on cable news and, and elsewhere argue for some kind of federal standard. I've seen politicians call for it as well. It's been frankly quite confusing because I thought that Trump was literally Hitler and that we should be opposing him and that he's uh, you know, a Nazi that wants to take power and take control and, and control everything. And yet their plan, they're actually legitimately angry at Trump for not taking over in their states and taking more federal power. Like, I don't get that when a when it's reversed and there's a Democrat president in office or a Republican president in office. I mean, this stays true for me regardless. I don't like the federal government taking more control and more power. I like the fact that I live in a red state where some of our, our policies and our laws are going to be different and distinct from the national agenda. I really don't understand. Well, I do understand, but I'm just saying it, it makes no sense if you really believe, A, that Trump is a Nazi and a fascist and wants to take power, and B, that he has done a horrible job when it comes to the coronavirus, These are the two things that they keep repeating over and over and over and over again, and yet they want him to take control of the entire country and have a standard that goes across every single state. Well, if he really sucks at the coronavirus response, why would you want him in charge? Of your state, because I've not only seen Democrats calling for a national standard when it comes to masks, but a national standard when you have to shut down or when you when you're allowed to open back up with the whole like the four phase plan or whatever that is that the national uh, government would mandate that states not reopen until they meet these qualifications or say that you can reopen once you've done that, but they actually have to go out and the federal government enforce that, and I just. The logic doesn't make sense that if you believe that Trump is a Nazi that is just power hungry and that he is also really, really bad at responding to coronavirus why you're like, yeah, I want that guy in charge. He should be taking more power. And we're actually angry with him for not taking more power. It makes absolutely no sense unless, unless you remember that they are progressives that love centralized government. Because, frankly, I don't think that even they really believe that Trump is some kind of tyrant. I, I don't. I believe that they like screaming about it. I believe they love saying it as a talking point. But if they actually believed that, they wouldn't be calling for an increase in his power and influence in their state. I do believe that they think he's handled the coronavirus response wrong, but I don't believe that they are sincere in believing that he is some kind of tyrant. But I also think from a strategic perspective... An increase in federal government is always a benefit to the Democrats, period. Anytime the federal government increases its power, its influence, its scope, that which it is able to interfere with when it comes to the states, that is a win for the Democrat Party. Because, yeah, maybe a Republican president puts it into place, and maybe he's the one that starts the ball rolling and just sort of dabbles in interventionalism, in other words, overriding the will of the states in order to enact the will of the federal government. Maybe he's the one that starts that. But the second that he does, when a Democrat inevitably takes his place in the White House, well then all of a sudden it's open season. They'll take that little bit of intervention that a Republican president did and expand it wildly. And actually they prefer doing it that way. They prefer doing it that way because they can say, well, it was a Republican president, not a Democrat president that started this ball rolling. We're just continuing on his work. They love doing that. And this is no exception. When you had things like, for example, a perfect example with this, No Child Left Behind with George W. Bush, Race to the Top and uh, all of the programs that Bush put into place eventually became Common Core. They just waited for George W. Bush to do a little bit of intervention, and then they came in and said, well, we have to fix the program that George W. Bush screwed up, and and let's be honest, he kind of did screw that up. Not nearly as bad as Common Core, but, but he did get that ball rolling, and once that is in place, it's very, very difficult to stop that momentum. And the Democrats know that, and so they frankly don't really care which president increases federal power because an increase in centralized planning and centralized big government is always a win for them no matter who actually enacts it. And in a lot of ways, it's better if a Republican does it because then they feel like that gives them some justification and some bipartisanship when they do put their agenda into motion later on using that that a Republican president put into place as a starting point. But overall, we need to look at this specifically, because we've been talking generally so far. Let's look at this specifically in terms of the coronavirus and whether or not this propaganda that the media has been pushing is actually true. Are red states doing a very poor job of responding to the coronavirus, whereas blue states which tend to be very much more authoritarian, much more so uh, on the the stance of making through, uh, through the law, through the blunt force of law, mandates for masks, shutdowns, all of those things. I mean, California still hasn't technically reopened. They've reopened some things, but they've stayed largely closed since March. And so that's actually a pretty good it'll, it'll allow you to wrap your head around the kind of narrative that's actually being put forward here is that they're saying, Oh yes, California is handling it correctly. All of these red state governors that were very quick to try to reopen and wanted to reopen as soon as possible. They're handling this very poorly. So let's look at the evidence. First of all, one of the things that they're using to peddle this is the fact that there has been a massive increase in spikes specifically in southern states, Republican-controlled states, and that is true. You can actually look at this graphic right here and see. Now, you'll see there on this list of states, these are sorted by the cases per population. So this isn't even raw numbers. This is per population. This is adjusted so your small states and your large states have a fair, even playing ground to be compared on. And look at the list. Louisiana, Arizona, Florida... So you have to get all the way to number four, New York before you even get to a blue state. and then after that, Mississippi, New Jersey, Alabama, Georgia, South Carolina, and then Rhode Island, which is is blue, and then District of Columbia, which is blue, but you know it's it's a city, um, Massachusetts, then Nevada, then Tennessee, then Texas. okay, that that's a lot of red states. That's quite a few Republican states, that's states primarily in the South that have big Republican majorities. Now, Arizona, it just kind of leans Republican. Georgia has been leaning Republican recently, but it is 100% fair to say that the vast majority of those states that have the largest case numbers per population A lot of those states are red states, and so it's not that this is based off of absolutely nothing, but let's dig into the numbers and see if what they're saying is actually true. Here's the problem with all of that. You would have to completely ignore the spikes in California in order to run with this narrative. Now, California, you may notice, was not on that list. And why is that? Because California is one of our largest states, one of our most populated states, and so it takes a much longer time for their spikes to show up because they have a larger population. So if you're looking at total per population, per capita, it takes a longer time for California to move up on that. And you have to also keep in mind that because California, the the geography of their state, makes it very different as well in terms of climate, culture... Uh, the, the kinds of people that they have in their population, and so that makes it a little bit different because it's almost like comparing three or four states with some of the other ones that we saw here. But there have been pretty significant spikes in California that have happened right along the same timeline with Texas and Arizona and Florida. And remember that Florida is a purple state. Now, it currently has a Republican governor, but Florida traditionally is a swing state and has been for about two decades now, for sure. I mean, you could go all the way back to the Al Gore George W. Bush contest, but but Florida tends to swing one way or the other. Now, uh, you would also have to look at the fact that four out of the four states that they're, they they keep talking about, because the four you hear mention the most, uh, the the three that the four that you hear mention the most when you're talking about spikes and cases. Arizona, Texas, California, Florida. Out of those four, which have had the most notable spikes, three of them border states. California, Arizona, Texas. This is another thing that people are not talking about, is that a lot of coronavirus cases are popping up specifically around the border. And interestingly enough, the policy now is you cannot immigrate into the United States unless you have coronavirus, which also makes no sense. Let me, let me play this out for you. If you're somebody that is a legal immigrant, that has your papers, that has done the paperwork, and you want to come through the border legally, you actually can't do that right now. Because, because of the virus, there's been a pause on that. However, if you come across and you have coronavirus and do so illegally to get free health care, they have to care for you. So literally the only people coming across the border right now in the border states are actually people that do have the coronavirus. Now, maybe there are some illegal immigrants slipping through that just don't have it, but it's also important to remember that currently Mexico, the amount of people that they are testing versus the amount of people that are being confirmed is somewhere last I saw in the 40 percentile. So this thing is running rampant through Mexico right now. And the people that are coming across the border largely are those that are infected with coronavirus or have just come from, or even if they don't, they're coming from a country where it's rampant, so they're more likely to have it even if they don't realize that they have it yet. So, I mean, when you look at this, I mean, that's just a, a perfect storm. Now, Florida doesn't have that problem. Florida spikes are unconnected to that. But those other three states, the border does play a pretty significant factor in the spikes that they're seeing. Also, you would need to consider this graph here. This is the total cases per population, but the bottom 15. So let's look at these states, North Dakota. That's a red state, Missouri. That's traditionally a red state, kind of purplish, but, but usually red, Ohio. That's a swing state, Washington, definitely blue, Kentucky, Red State, Wyoming, Red State, New Hampshire, Blue State, Oregon, Blue State, Alaska, Red State, Montana, Red State, West Virginia. West Virginia is not only a red state, it is second only to the state of Alabama in its approval rating of Donald Trump in the last poll. I think in Alabama, Donald Trump's approval rating is 63%, and in West Virginia, it's like 61-62. In fact, West Virginia and Alabama actually switch back and forth, usually, on who likes Trump the most. So, West Virginia is not just a red state, it is an extremely red state. And then, Maine, Vermont, and Hawaii, all of which are blue states. So, if you're looking at the bottom 15, it's a pretty healthy blend. Got several blue states, several red states. Well, if this was just mismanagement by the red states, why do we have a whole bunch of red states that are in the bottom 15 as well? And also, it's important to note that in some of the states that we just looked at, North Dakota, Montana, when you're looking at some of those Mountain West states, they have very low numbers despite the fact that their governors were one of the most hands-off out of all of the states. Governor Ivey's approach has been way more hands-on and way more in favor of things like mask mandates and shutdowns than Montana or North Carolina's, or North Carolina, uh, North Dakota's governors have been. So if the problem or the the X factor here are shutdowns and mandates and how hands-on the governors are, that list really doesn't make sense that you've got a whole bunch of red states that did actually, uh, were actually freer and did a more libertarian, laissez-faire kind of approach to the virus than a lot of the red states that are at the top of the list. So how do you sync all that? How does all of that make sense? Well, there's a couple of different factors that I think have a lot to do with it. First of all, a lot of those states like the Dakotas, like Montana, very, very sparsely populated. And that makes it a lot harder for the virus to spread. Inherently, regardless of who was in charge, regardless of political party, that would be true no matter what. Here's the other thing. Do you notice that all of the red states that were in the top 15 are southern states? Every single one of them. They are southern states that have a very warm climate. See, I was hopeful, and you may remember that I actually said this on the show, that the intense heat in the South that would come in the summer would actually kill the virus off, but it seems as though it actually helped facilitate it, not because heat is good for the virus, but because when it's 100 degrees outside, people tend to stay indoors and not go outside. And because of that, and they tend to congregate, they're in air conditioning all day, which actually makes the virus easier to spread as opposed to the more mild and we actually had a very mild spring this year that we were having earlier in the year so part of the reason that you're seeing an awful lot of the southern states including alabama on that top 15 when it comes to cases versus population probably has a lot to do with that i don't think it's a mistake that arizona is also in the top 15 and then you've got montana and alaska in the bottom 15 despite being red states as well the determining factor is not whether a governor is a Republican or a Democrat when it comes to this. It has a lot more to do with geography and the natural conditions surrounding these states than the political makeup of it. That's simply the truth. And so I want you to also look at this one because this also gives a great deal of insight because we've been looking at total cases Now let's look at total deaths because that gives us a very different picture of who is handling the virus well and who isn't. These are total deaths, again, adjusted for population, courtesy of World Meter. So let's look at the top 15 states when it comes to deaths per population. New Jersey, New York, Massachusetts, Connecticut, Rhode Island. Okay, we haven't hit a blue state yet. These are all solid, or sorry, we haven't hit a red state yet. These are solid, solid blue states. Now we finally get to a red state, Louisiana. And then it's District of Columbia, Michigan, Illinois, then Mississippi. So we got to get all the way down to Mississippi to even get another red state. And then it's Delaware, Maryland, Pennsylvania, then Arizona, and Indiana. So out of those top 15, we had four red states. And they weren't even near the top. On the stat that really matters, whether or not people actually died the blue states have way more deaths. It's not even close. And a lot of that does have to do with their demographics. It has to do with the fact that they have larger, more population-dense populations. But, I, I mean, at the end of the day, if you're trying to make this into a red or a blue state media, the blue states are losing by a lot. It's not even close. So I would be careful about playing this game. Now, a lot of that has to do with the fact that the new, the biggest population center in New England, New York's Governor Andrew Cuomo, is a complete and utter dunce that completely destroyed his state when it came to this. If New York were a country, if you counted it as a country instead of a state, he would have one of the highest death rates of any country on planet Earth. It wouldn't even be close. And if it were its own country and you were to lift New York and their stats out of the United States, United States would actually be a lot better when it came to deaths versus population on the international stage. We would move from like, I think we were 13th or 14th last I checked, we would move all the way down to like 50th. And so New York in and of itself, because of people like Comrade Bill de Blasio and Andrew Cuomo, they by themselves through mismanagement and actually sending people with coronavirus into the most deadly place that they could go, nursing homes, caused a lot more deaths than even their European counterparts. Where the virus was way worse and showed up earlier where they had less time to prepare. And so the idea that mismanagement of Republican governors is causing problems for people, no, people like Andrew Cuomo have literal blood on their hands because of this. Sending COVID-positive people into nursing homes. Now, I've been pretty darn critical of our governor. And I've been critical of several other Republican governors for making decisions that I thought were not smart. But nothing they have done even compares to that. That is arguably the worst thing that you could do. I I mean, other than just having people walking around, finding elderly people with pre-existing conditions and specifically trying to infect them, I don't think that you could do any worse than sending COVID-positive people and saying legally they can't, they're not even allowed to take someone that tested positive for the virus and ask them not to come into a nursing home. By the way, another thing that you may... Uh, also be interested in, because Andrew Cuomo keeps trying to trot this out, that he has lower nursing home deaths than several other states. You also have to keep in mind that if somebody was in a nursing home and got it because of Andrew Cuomo's stupid law, and then they went to the hospital, they don't count that as a nursing home death. Unless the person actually died within the four walls of the nursing home, they say that's not a nursing home death. Even if they know for a fact that they contracted it in a nursing home, doesn't matter. The state of New York doesn't count that as a nursing home death. So don't let them peddle this lie. Last time I I checked, the New York, New Jersey, that sort of New England area, uh, I believe their death rate is 13 times, just with New York City alone, 13 times what the other states surrounding them are. It's absolutely insane that they're now trying to make the case that people like Andrew Cuomo handled it right, and you've got red state governors like... Ron DeSantis or Brian Kemp that are botching it. No, that is not going to fly. The numbers don't even come close to bearing that out. Now, remember that another thing that may be a contributing factor here is that when did New England see their spikes? Well, they saw them very early on. Their spikes happened at the beginning of this thing. Well, what was also true at the beginning of all this testing wasn't readily available. The tests weren't all that accurate. We, you know, we did the best that we could, and it was a situation that was brand new, but the testing capabilities that we have now, they just didn't exist when they hit their spikes, which also means that there are probably an awful lot of people that actually did get the coronavirus and didn't know it Back when all of this was taking place, now that we have much more robust testing and more reliable testing, a lot of that is showing up. So if you have two locations, one that had a spike where testing wasn't readily available, and another one that their spike came after testing was widespread and everybody that wanted to get a test could get a test, well then of course, by percentage of population, the place that had their spike during a time where testing was much more robust, that place is, of course, going to show up as having more. That stands to reason. Because even if they had the exact same number, let's say it were two places with the exact same population, with the exact same numbers, the exact same demographics, everything, one had their spike early, one had their spike late. If you look at the numbers, of course it's going to seem as though location number two had way more because their spike came at a time where everybody that wanted to get a test could get a test. That's what you're seeing now. I'm not saying it's the only factor, but it's a big factor when it comes to comparing it to places like New York and New Jersey that had their spikes very, very early on when we didn't have as much testing capability. That does make a pretty big difference. And another thing that I want you to consider here Let's look at the spikes in Texas, Arizona, and Florida, since these are the states that Democrats are constantly ragging and saying are not handling this well. So if you're looking at these spikes and looking at the timeline here, you may notice something interesting, that you started to see an increase in numbers when the lockdown started. And remember, this is a combination of Arizona, Florida, and Texas per million. So this is adjusted for population. So at the very beginning, you see an increase, After an increase, you see a lockdown, and then reopenings happen, and the line stays pretty much flat. And then you get to the protest, and cases skyrocket. Now, deaths remain roughly the same. There is a slight increase in deaths, you can see at the end of that chart, but not a giant one. Certainly not one that coincides with the massive explosion of cases per million in Texas, Arizona, and Florida. Now, does this definitively prove that the protests that happened in reaction to the death of George Floyd are the cause of the cases? No, I don't think that you can make that case. You can't definitively say that, oh, well, look, that happened right after the protest. Could they have been a factor? I think so, actually. But not because there were a whole bunch of people gathering outside. I think it has a lot more to do with the fact that, A, You've got a whole bunch of people that are now scared of the protest and now congregating together and not leaving their home or B, it could be something, uh, that's a combination of that and how the media handled it very cavalier. And now people are going out and interacting with one of people with one another because they're seeing video of crowds in the streets and the same media that was telling them to be afraid of their own chatter is shadow is now saying, we commend these people for their bravery and going out there and not worrying about the virus and risking their lives and all this other stuff. They're like, oh, well, this is the same people that were telling me that I was going to die of this, even if I'm 25 and never had a health condition in my life, then I guess it's okay to go outside. And so they went out and interacted with one another and got the virus. I'm not saying for sure I know that happened, but you can't tell me that that wasn't at least a part of the psychological math going on here when all of this took place. I think that had way more of effect than people actually catching the virus ...at the protest. I don't think that that probably happened all that often because it happened largely outside. Maybe a few people did. Probably not a lot. And so, that played a much bigger factor in all of this. So, maybe in that way, the protest did contribute to the rise in cases. But even so, it didn't result in a rise of deaths because it was mostly younger, healthier people... ...that were getting the virus. Which, again... Maybe protests played a factor in because who were the people protesting? Largely young, healthy people. And so it would make sense that the deaths don't rise nearly as starkly or in conjunction with the cases, at least not in a very noticeable way. And so that would actually play out. That would actually make sense if protests at least played a role in the increase in cases. But what it does definitively show, regardless of whether protests played a role in it, it does definitively show that the ending of the lockdowns, in other words, the reopening, that wasn't the catalyst. This thing has an incubation period of two weeks. That's a gap of two months. There is no way that the reopenings were the cause of this. And you'll see on that chart, if if you're looking at that timeline, You've got a two-month gap between when a lot of these people were reopening and the cases actually started going up, which would leave a reasonable, rational person that doesn't have a dog in the fight to look at that data and go, huh, reopenings must have not had anything to do with it. The government shutdowns simply do not work. Every bit of data bears that conclusion out. Furthermore, If we're going to compare it to a blue state, in other words, we're gonna compare the mismanaged red states to blue states, let's go ahead and look at a comparison of those three states to New York. So you'll see there that the dotted line are cases, the solid line is deaths. And the blue one there, New York, Not only do they have a gigantic spike much larger than the combined cases per population of Arizona, Florida, and Texas, and of course it's earlier as well, you'll also notice that their deaths coincide very clearly with their cases. Not so in those other three states. In the other three states, you have an increase in death, sure, but that doesn't, it doesn't comport with, it does not rise at the same rate that their case rate does. And so New York is literally the worst case scenario. In fact, if you were to compare this with one of the early models that we saw, you remember that we saw everybody, it was, it was everywhere. I used it on this show, the whole flatten the curve model. New York looks like the worst case scenario from that model. And Arizona and Texas and Florida, they all look like the flatten the curve model. They do hit a spike later on, which is a lot bigger than it was initially, but that's because they did a good job of that, and it didn't result in more deaths. This narrative that they're trying to put out there, that red states are just botching this and Democrat uh, mayors and governors are doing a fantastic job, There's simply no data that backs that up. You just dig into the data just a little bit, and it shows that that narrative has absolutely nothing to it. So the real question is, why are they doing this? Well, from the political standpoint, I think it's pretty obvious. There's political gain to be made here. If they can make the case that Republicans are very, very bad at this, then there's a chance that they might actually win an election off of it. So there's the obvious motivation there. But I think there's a lot of well-intended, good-hearted people that probably aren't all that political that are still trying to push the idea that we all need to be masked up 24-7, even inside the house with other people. I mean, I'm giving an extreme example there, but, but that's kind of the mentality where these people are, that we have to continue to social distance even though we have all this good news that the virus isn't nearly as deadly as we originally uh, originally thought it was, it's not nearly as contagious as we originally thought it was, this thing does die in sunlight and so we're safer when we're outside. Uh, all of these things, all of this good news, the reason that you have some people that just don't seem to want to like the good news, because I'm the opposite. I saw that as like, yeah, awesome. That's a really good thing. I'm really glad that the virus isn't nearly as bad as we originally thought it was. There are a lot of people, though, I think that they they have some kind of cognitive dissonance. And it's kind of like the guy that spends three or four days when he knows that there's a big storm coming, if, if there was a prediction, like let's say that there was a hurricane, and he lives near the water and was afraid that his house was going to be flooded and, and spent several hours of preparation boarding up his house, putting up the uh, the sandbags around his house and all of this, and then the hurricane doesn't come, he's almost kind of disappointed. I mean, I'm sure that he's glad that his house hasn't been ripped to shreds, but it's almost like, man, I did all this for nothing. And so he's almost like holding on to this idea that, okay, I've, I've got to do something here, and, and everybody else is taking their provisions off and they're you know, walking away, it doesn't look like it's going to come this way anyway. And this guy's like, no, 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 he's holding on to this idea that we have to do this because he doesn't want to feel like he wasted his time or did all that for nothing. I think there are some people, I don't know how many, but I think there are some people that are like that with the coronavirus. They don't like the idea that we torpedoed one of the most prosperous economic times in American history basically for nothing. And they don't want to think that we, we shut all this down and, you know, miss my kid's graduation or my daughter's wedding or all this other stuff that we did this for nothing. And so they almost want to hold on to that narrative that the, the coronavirus is as bad as originally thought, because otherwise we did all this for no reason. Now, personally, I'm perfectly fine with the idea that I was a lot more cautious when this thing started because there was so much unknown than I am now, simply because, I know more now than I did then. There's some people that don't think of it that way. And I think that's part of the reason a lot of people are just clinging to this narrative. Even if they don't really have a political dog in the fight, they're just clinging to this idea of, no, it really is that bad because they don't want to feel like they went through all that and and had all this crap happen to them for no reason. And I really do feel for them because I, I kind of sympathize with it even though I happen to not be in that camp. And so just keep in mind, if you do run into people that are really holding on to this worst-case scenario kind of narrative, you know, maybe it's because they really want Donald Trump to lose the election or just really don't like Republicans. Maybe it's not. Maybe it really does boil down to that. And that's a real syndrome that does happen when people face, you know, big disasters in their life. So you know maybe just be conscientious about that all right so what we're going to do is we're going to take a break and we will be back in just a minute on tactics this is a news radio 1440 podcast and welcome back everybody thank you so much for being with us here on tactics couple quick news stories that i find frankly pretty entertaining which is good because it's been a long week and i need a couple stories make me laugh so the Alabama National Fair which I've been a proponent of for a very very long time I've been involved in the fair I think since I was no older than seven or eight for sure because my dad was always really involved with it we always got his FFA kids and and they were always in I mean fair time was very hectic for us because we would sometimes enter up to 40 or 50 exhibits for different kids that my dad had when he was teaching at Marbury and I started entering exhibits. I had been in the scarecrow contest, the Lego contest. Uh, I was in several cooking contests and of course, you know, regard, that's just the extra stuff on top of showing, which was always a very busy time for us as well. We always, well, I, I wouldn't say always, but we frequently had livestock animals. We were also showing at the state fair. And so, that was always a super busy time for us i love the fair it's been a part of my life for basically as long as i can remember so i don't want anybody to get the idea that i'm anti fair i'm i'm just you know poking a little fun at it here uh but the that is going to proceed on track uh the 9th through the 18th and they have said that they are going to do this despite the virus so they said that they might delay it down the road if it turns out that, you know, there's some kind of big spike in Montgomery or something like that. But they said, as of right now, the Alabama National Fair is going to happen, and it is going to happen at its regularly scheduled date. There are, unfortunately, quite a few things that are not going to take place. First of all, they're saying that there will be no events inside Garrett Coliseum. So for those of you that have been to the fair before, they usually have Garrett Coliseum sort of sectioned off by a bunch of curtains and they have several smaller exhibits inside Garrett. They're saying because it's such a big space, this time you're not going to be able to go inside Garrett Coliseum. Frankly, I think being inside Garrett Coliseum, getting coronavirus is probably the least of your worries. <laughs> like I'm I'm more worried that the, bus- the building is going to spontaneously collapse on my head than I am that... The coronavirus is going to get me, but, you know, I guess it makes sense. It is inside, and and the thing is, for an outdoor event like the fair, it makes sense for them to not have to cancel it. Uh, maybe at night it's a little more dangerous, but because of the heat and humidity, probably not. Um, now, since we also know that the virus probably doesn't live on surfaces, at least not to the extent that we originally thought, or that the the odds of transmission surface-to-surface is actually pretty darn low then that's pretty good and means that the fair rides are probably going to be more or less safe Uh, these are some precautions that the staff at the alabama national fair have issued and just wanted to let everybody know that they are going to be doing some things differently so of course i already told you about the garrett coliseum thing they also said that everybody is required required to wear masks and the coliseum staff will provide masks at the door four people without. This one again, a little bit silly especially considering you're outside and it's the fair so it'll probably be at least 85 degrees or higher the entire time that you're there because as you know in the state of Alabama, summer lasts from usually early March until mid November. So October is in the dead middle of summer for us. <laughs> uh it will probably, I mean maybe it could be cold and drizzly, In October. I guess that's technically a possibility, but it seems pretty darn unlikely. I've been living in Alabama my whole life. I don't think I can ever remember a time at the fair where it was legitimately cold. So that seems very unlikely. I don't really see why the masks are going to be necessary considering almost the entirety of the fair takes place outside. Now inside, if you're looking at the exhibits, okay, I get that. If you're in the Creative Living Center, if you're in one of those buildings, all right, yeah, masking kind of makes sense to be perfectly honest. I I would understand why the people in charge of the fair would be in favor of masking then. But even if it is in a crowd, if you're walking down the boardwalk, if you're walking down the the lanes between the rides there and, you know, uh, getting cotton candy or whatever, do you really need a mask? That just seems ridiculous. Another one that they've done, another change they've made, there will be fewer rides at the fair this year to help with social distancing. Okay, if it's a ride and you're sitting in the same seat that another pair of people sat in just two minutes before them and you know that they're not going to have the time or put forth the effort to properly sanitize every single seat after every single Person has sat on it. Like, do you really think that having less rides so people can be more distant from one another when they're going 65 miles an hour past one another is really going to make a difference? Like, this policy really doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me either. Uh, maybe there is a way that it will help. I don't know. Maybe what they're thinking of is there will be more space to walk around, go because there are less rides taking up space that people can spread out more while they're walking around okay maybe that actually does make a little bit of sense but i i I don't know i don't know how they reach that conclusion but on its surface that one just doesn't really seem to chive with me for whatever reason uh now this is my favorite one from the alabama department or the the alabama news network cleaning crews will regularly disinfect restrooms and surfaces on the fairgrounds because they weren't doing that before and the answer is no the answer is no they absolutely were not doing that they were not sanitizing restrooms <laughs> before <laughs> i mean it's the fair you know what this you know what it is and i love the fair but let's be honest if you've got to use the bathroom and you're at the fair you know, may, may the Lord be with you and protect you on that one. Coronavirus is the least of your worries when you're using a fair restroom. And I say that as someone that has had to do that quite a few times because I've been at the fair so many times. Um, You know, that's, that's the way that it is. Ultimately, I think this boils down to, guys, life is a calculated risk. If you feel confident enough to go to the fair, and if you are a person that is in his 20s or 30s or even 40s and you're a relatively healthy person with no underlying conditions, the odds of this thing killing you are actually less, in many cases, than the regular seasonal flu, which is a calculated risk that you take every t- single time you step outside your door during flu season. Could the flu kill somebody that's 18 or 25? Yeah, it could, theoretically. But the odds are so astronomically low that that would happen that we don't look at this. And for people in that category, the coronavirus is actually less deadly than the flu. And so we we almost act as though people don't have agency. Like that if the fair opens, oh, everyone must go to the fair. Like, they can't stop themselves, regardless of their own thoughts or their own will or the fact that they know that they have lung problems or asthma, that they will just go to the fair and risk their lives regardless. People have the ability to make their own decisions. All of life is a calculated risk. Even if you stay indoors, that in and of itself is a calculated risk. You know, maybe a bus drives through your house. It's unlikely, but it could happen and it could kill you even there. The entirety of our life is a calculated risk. We have to do a risk versus reward analysis, and if somebody wants to go out to the fair and they know that there is a, and I literally crunched the numbers on this last week if you want to check it out, they know that they are in the demographic where there is a 0.00033% chance that if they get the virus, not if, you know, the overall odds of maybe I catch it, maybe I don't, if, after they already have the virus, that is their odds of dying, I don't think that person is being at all unreasonable going like, you know what, screw it, I'm going to the fair. Like, there's nothing wrong with that. That's a perfectly rational conclusion to go to. If you're somebody that is very likely to die from coronavirus, if you're over the age of 85 and have severe lung damage, well, then regardless of what precautions that are being taken here, even if they did all of these things and actually did them well, there's no reason you should be going out to the fair. And so that that's why I think that the bending over backwards and doing a lot of things that frankly don't make a whole lot of sense is just silly because we act as though individuals do not have agency and are incapable of making wise decisions on their own. And ultimately it's the same thing with the school debate. I'm not going to rehash this. I'm just saying that. But when we're talking about calculated risk, which is more dangerous? coronavirus or the fair itself? I mean, let's be honest. Are you risking your life more going out there when, regardless of your age, this virus has a 99.96% survival rate? Are you risking your life more doing that, knowing that virus is out there and you could potentially catch it, Or are you risking your life more getting on a ride that goes 65 miles an hour that was put together in four hours by a meth head directly before scarfing down an entire stick of fried butter? Like, that is a far more hazardous event to your health than the possibility of catching coronavirus. So if people are willing to go to the fair, man, you're already taking your life into your own hands. And I say that affectionately because I like the fair. But I'm just saying, let's be perfectly honest about that. That risk is already baked into the fair regardless of whether the coronavirus is out there floating around or not. It's just just a fact of life. So all of this ridiculousness, I don't think that it's actually something that is justified or warranted. People are going to make their own decisions. Now... Another really fun story that we could go into is a story uh, where the the feature here is Dr. Quentin Lee. He is the principal of Childersburg High School who made a parody video explaining some of the new policies for coronavirus. And I could get into it or give you some description. But frankly, I think it's best if I just let you watch a couple clips from this. Enjoy. You can't touch this. You can't touch this. You can't touch this. You can't touch this. I told you <laughs> students, you can't touch this. You better pull that mask up. It's actually not a bad dance. It's the CDC, not me. You can't touch
1: this. Hey, don't
0: you wash your hands. You can't touch this. Fresh new rules and plans. Let's all be safe. Go wash your hands. So move back up 6 feet. You better not cough and you better not sneeze Annotation. Hold on, let me check your temp. Not under your arm. Six (laughs) feet. Now this move is great because... Stop. Sanitize. (laughs) I love that last part where he's basically doing the MC Hammer Pants dance. Because if you've seen the music video of Can't Touch This by MC Hammer, uh, you know he does that at the bottom and, and just him doing that with the ruler and the six feet thing. That just, here's the thing. I may not agree with all of the policies of the schools, but I at least acknowledge when something's funny and, uh, I appreciate that he's having some fun with it. I don't know the man personally. That video is literally the extent of my interaction with him. But if there is an administrator that is willing to go to the nth degree and, and go the extra mile and to do something silly and entertaining like that for his students, He's probably a pretty good principal. Maybe he's not. I really don't know, but I love to see that. I love to see educators and and maybe it is because I come from a teacher family and because education is something that that has been so central to my upbringing and my rearing. I really do love it when educators go the extra mile for our students and and yes, sometimes I'm critical of the public education system to a to the nth degree. But, uh, you know, we, we have some fantastic educators in our state, and I do love to applaud the really good ones that are willing to, to do that extra level, to go that extra mile for our students. And I appreciate uh, Dr. Lee for making me laugh and, and hopefully making his students laugh as well. At least he's, you know, having fun with it, which is really about the best that you can expect <laughs> with everything that's going on right now. Let's go on to the Daily Dose of Stupid. I messed it up you're stupid and for today's daily dose of stupid cnn is going to be at the center of this one which i'm sure comes as a surprise to nobody they've it's not like they've never been here before cnn is is pretty often the source of our daily dose of stupid uh so this is a tweet actually not done by any one individual i mean i'm sure there was a guy that did it but uh, this is just tweeted out by cnn uh in general so if we can check out this tweet So they're sharing an article here about uh, cervical cancer screenings. And you can see in the tweet there, they say individuals with the cervix are now recommended to start cervical cancer screening at 25. <laughs> so they're putting out this notice about cervical cancer and they say individuals with the cervix, which is very obviously a nod to transgenderism what the suggestion or the implication that they are intentionally implying here is that you can also have a cervix despite not being a woman because otherwise there's no reason to say anything other than women of this certain age need to get cervical cancer screenings. They they go out of their way to say individuals with a cervix. Uh which um man, some of the responses on Twitter were great. We'll get to them in a second, but uh that's I got to believe that the vast majority of women, even liberal women that may agree with a lot of this ridiculousness, the vast majority of them that just aren't on board with the transgender thing, they've got to look at this and just be shaking their head. I mean, they're women. Call them women. That's what it is. Like, getting neck deep in this political correct garbage doesn't really help anybody. A person with a cervix is a woman. End of story. Full stop. Full stop. There are no exceptions. If you have that, you're a woman. If you have other stuff, then you're a man. Facts don't care about your feelings. So, to kind of illustrate this, my fav- one of my favorite responses was uh, Pierce Morgan. Pierce Morgan, remember, this is the former CNN host, so he is arguing on Twitter with his former employer that wound up letting him go a few years ago. Pierce Morgan is one of the furthest left individuals you will meet anywhere. This is a guy who on national TV, when he was debating Ben Shapiro, straight up said, I don't care about the Constitution. This is not a right-wing pundit here. And Pierce Morgan said this on Twitter in response to this. Do you mean women? (laughs) One of the great things about the whole own the libs thing, and I'm not like... A lot of people... Own the libs is the ultimate for them. They, they really want to own the libs. In fact, they will go out of their way and even be ideologically inconsistent or support things that they don't even actually support, just voice their support for them as though they do support it just so it makes people on the left angry. I've never bought into that, but sometimes owning the libs is just saying common sense things that everyone should agree on. Merely saying, uh, well, a person with a cervix, another word for that would be woman. By Pierce freaking Morgan. If you are too far left for Pierce Morgan, it is time to rethink your political priorities. If if Pierce Morgan is looking at you, you go, yeah, that's that's just some crazy people on the left, <laughs> it is time to do some self-evaluation at that point. But anyway. <laughs> individuals with a cervix. It gets me every time. This is another really good response because sometimes, especially when you're dealing with CNN, the best way to punch them in the face is to let them punch themselves in the face. In other words, throw their own propaganda back at them. Because remember, this is CNN who still pretends to be a news organization. At least MSNBC is like, you know what? We're a left news organization. We're just taking the veil off. We're not even going to pretend to try to be objective anymore. We support the left's agenda and we're with them. CNN still pretends as though it is objective and it pretends as though it is an actual news organization. And one of the ways that they tried to do that, just to give a little context, is with an ad they came out with, I don't know, about two years ago, I guess, where they have an apple, and basically the theme of this ad is, this is an apple. People might say it's a banana, but it's not. It's an apple. No matter what anybody else says, this is an apple. And they they rehashed that for about 30 seconds. We made fun of it at the time because of the way that CNN is. But here we have um, a tweet by Molly Hemingway she works over at the Federalist. This was her reply to the individuals, with, as an individual with the cervix herself, uh, the individuals with the cervix tweet. That's all it is. This is an apple, and that's clearly a banana for those of you listening on radio. But sometimes the best way to deal with CNN is just to punch them in the face with their own propaganda. That's all you have to do there. Molly Hemingway really doing yeoman's work over there at the Federalist, just owning CNN by literally posting a reference to their own ad. But what's funny about this whole thing is it's technically a double denial. Because first they're denying that people with a cervix are women. And then they're getting knee-deep into a second denial because the first one is that A woman is merely a social construct or a feeling. That's really what this all boils down to. Because if they're saying that a person without a cervix can be a woman, then they're saying what a woman is, they are defining woman in a different way than everybody else on the planet. They're saying now that to be a woman, all you have to do is feel like a woman or think that you're a woman. So Shania Twain was actually ahead of the curve on this one. Uh, but, but as long as you feel as though you're a woman, regardless of what your biology says, regardless of what your cells say, then you actually are a woman. Now, that's very different than saying a person can dress like a woman or act like a woman. CNN is saying, no, they actually are women, which is the reason we can't say women over a certain age need to get cervical cancer screens. We have to broaden that to anybody that has a cervix because somebody with a cervix may be a man, in fact, which is, of course, utter nonsense. But that's the first denial. The second denial, which comes on top of the first denial, is an attempt to maintain some level of consistency. So the second denial here is denying biology. See, the thing is, because I said, and I'm borrowing from Ben Shapiro here, facts don't care about your feelings. Well, biology doesn't care about your feelings either because biology is objective. Biology is a fact. And so anybody that is a woman could get cervical cancer. Cervical cancer also does not care about your feelings. Not one bit. No matter how much of a uh, a transgender you are, even if you're 100% there, you always feel like a man and act like a man and dress like a man, even if you have the surgery uh, and all that stuff. I mean, I guess unless you have your cervix removed, I then technically you wouldn't have to worry about it or get screenings. But No matter how far into this ideology you are, no amount of feeling like a man is going to make you immune to cervical cancer. And so this is the second denial that CNN is putting on top of that first, that being a woman means merely, well, just whatever you feel. The second is that biology somehow reflects that or or that, you know, mental disorder of gender dysphoria manifests itself in an actual fact. That's not the case, because if it were a fact, in fact, if, if feeling like a woman made you a woman, you wouldn't have to worry about cervical cancer. If feeling, or sorry, if, if feeling like a man made you a man, you wouldn't have to worry about cervical cancer because you would not be a woman. But the thing is, these people are women. And therefore, they have to worry about cervical cancer. Remember, I'm a testicular cancer survivor. If I identified as a woman, dressed like a woman... Nothing that I did, aside from removing my testicles, would have made me immune to testicular cancer. It would have come and gotten me regardless of how much of a woman I felt like I was. Even if I wore a dress every day, even if I changed my name, even if I married a male person and and lived like a woman in every conceivable way, still wouldn't matter, I'd still be a guy. I would still have an X chromosome and a Y chromosome, and unless I lopped them off, I would still have testicles, which would still be susceptible to cancer. And this is the great denial that CNN is engaged in because error begets error. They had to engage in the first denial that women were actually a thing. And so they went off into this this crazy, backward, bizarro world where women is just a feeling and not actually a thing. And then they have to sync that with the fact that Well, biology doesn't care how much you feel like a woman, and so then they have to bring on this second denial to try to comport their first denial with reality, which doesn't work. And this is how you get far down this road is because since you are no longer invested in truth, it's just like when you tell a lie to somebody else. You have to continuously lie on top of that and lie on top of that in order to keep it going. That's the situation that CNN and the left who is on board with this transgender initiative, that is the situation they find themselves in today. And it's also important to note that feminism, lesbianism, and transgenderism cannot possibly coexist. This is proof of this. And by the way, there are actual lesbians and transgenders that are starting to figure this out. Because what this basically does is it erases women if women are just something that we came up with and women don't actually exist, they're all figments of our imagination. Well, if that is the case, then you can't be a lesbian. I mean, it doesn't work that way because if you're a lesbian and you say, no, I only want people that have a cervix. I mean, I guess you could phrase it that way. Um, They would say, no, I feel like a woman, ergo I am a woman and you're a bigot for not being attracted to me. See, this is the way that these two errors cannot coexist because they're not rooted in fundamental truth. Ergo, lesbianism and transgenderism cannot possibly exist. Feminism can also not coexist with transgenderism because you can't believe that women are special and unique if you don't believe women are a thing. If you believe that we're all interchangeable and we are whatever we feel like we are at the moment, well, then there's nothing special to being a woman. If women are exactly the same as men in every, uh, in every conceivable way, and the only reason that we perceive any differences are because of a social construct, well, then women are just human beings and, and men are just human beings, and there's no differences in them. You cannot acknowledge any difference in them and also believe in transgenderism. Ergo, it is impossible to be both a feminist and a transgender. It is also impossible to be a lesbian, and also a transgender. Those things do not work. You can't say, I only want to sleep with women if you don't believe women are real. And so what happens is when they have engaged in this debauchery and this heresy, the further down the line they get, they start realizing that, oh, these worldviews aren't possibly compatible with one another. There's no way to sync these two uh, irreconcilable worldviews. It just doesn't work that way. Our chaplain's report today does come from the book of 1 Samuel. We are continuing our series on Samuel, and this particular story, we've been dealing with this one for a while now, but there is so much in this chapter, so much that relates directly to our lives today, despite it being a story that has taken place multiple millennia in the past, and yet it really does speak to human nature and and to things that we still continue to deal with in our relationship with God today. So, Saul was given a direct command by God to go and to slay all of the Amalekites. Don't take any spoil. Don't take their land. Don't take their livestock. Destroy all of them. Everything are to be wiped off the face of the earth for the sins that they've committed. That was Saul's marching orders. And then Saul gets there and he decides, okay, well, we're going to mostly do that, but we're going to keep all of the nicest livestock, any of the best livestock that you see. You see some really nice-looking cattle or sheep, we're going to bring those with us, and uh, also we're going to leave King Agag, the king of the Amalekites, we're going to leave him alive, so we're not going to utterly destroy them the way God told us to. And he and Samuel have had this back and forth that first Samuel denies it, and then he kind of acknowledges that he sinned, but he says, I did it because the people were spurring me on to do this, and I was weak, and I made a mistake, and so Uh, Samuel says, okay, now I'm going to have the throne taken away from you, And, and Saul is very upset about this. He says, please, no, don't do this. I'm sorry. Forgive me. And Samuel says, look, basically the die is cast. God has already made his mind up. He's not going to go back on this. The kingdom is going to be taken away from you, Saul. And this is the situation that we find ourselves in right now. So after all of that has happened, all of that has taken place, This is what happens afterward, is that it is given to Samuel to set all of this right, and we find this in 1 Samuel 15, verses 32 and 33, which says, Then Samuel said, Bring me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully, and Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. But Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hewed Agag to pieces before the Lord at Gilgal. So this is Samuel carrying out the execution that Saul should have when he came across Agag, if he had been obeying God's commandments. So, I think the overarching theme of this verse is pretty obvious. No man escapes God's justice, ever, for any reason. God's justice is coming upon you. Now, sometimes it happens in this life, sometimes it happens in the next life. In this particular situation, it happens in this life. But even if it doesn't happen here, it's going to happen eventually. God's justice waits for no man. When God is ready to delve it out, it is coming regardless of what anybody wants. And Agag was convinced, based on the context of the scripture. Now, you could translate cheerfully. Oddly enough, and this is just the way the Hebrew language works, you could also translate that into, he was brought to him in chains, but either way, whether he was actually cheerful or whether he was just brought to him in bonds, we are given an indication by the the preceding sentence there that Agag really did believe that he had basically, the, the window of opportunity for him to be killed was gone and he was convinced that he was going to continue to live. Didn't happen. Samuel was going to set it straight. It fell upon Samuel to correct the mistake of Saul. And so, this is something that he took upon himself. You see, when people fail to obey God, God's going to get it done. Now, he may get it done through somebody else. He may get it done through providence. But this is a biblical truth that is true throughout the Scripture. One of the best passages, in my opinion, in the book of Esther is when Esther is given this opportunity to go forth and act as the mouthpiece and to try to save the Jews and you remember that Mordecai, her cousin, that spurs her on to do this, very godly man, he says, salvation is going to come either way. In other words, God's will to save the Jews, that's going to happen regardless of what you do. But basically, he gives her the choice of, you can be the conduit through which God's will takes place, or you can be an obstacle to it. God's will is going to be done either way. Doesn't matter. And that's really true of us as well. We can choose to either be the one that facilitates God's will being carried out, like Saul, uh, that King Saul actually had the opportunity to do in a very direct way here, or we can choose to oppose him, but God's will is going to be accomplished regardless of what we do. Even if we directly oppose God's will and try to stop it, God's will is going to be accomplished one way or the other. Let's take a, another biblical story with Jonah. Now, God took Jonah and put him back on the right path to Nineveh. But even if Jonah had refused, even if Jonah had refused to the point that God allowed him to die, somebody was going to be preaching to Nineveh. It would have happened one way or the other. And this is a perfect example of that. When Saul refuses to do what God asked him to do, it falls to Samuel. So God's will was still accomplished. It just happened through a different person. And another thing about that is that will we facilitate God's will or oppose it? I mean, obviously that's a big part of it. But I think that it should also convey upon us a a certain sense of responsibility because, of course, we should want to obey God because it's the right thing to do, because it's what He tells us to do, It's, it's part of our role as Christians. But ultimately, I think we also need to be aware of the fact that if we don't do it, that becomes somebody else's burden to bear. So, if nothing other than the love for our brothers and sisters in Christ and, and the other people of God, we need to also want to do the will of God because it lessens their burden. Because somebody else is going to have to take the responsibility of that if we don't. And so, not only to help God's kingdom, but also to ensure that that's not something that somebody else now has to do. Because I'm sure that Samuel would have rather not done this. I mean, he was going to do it one way or the other because it's what God wanted to happen. But ultimately, he would have much rather Saul just done what God told him to do than have to deal with all this. We see this later on in the same chapter where Samuel is, is very sorrowful and repentant and upset at what has happened to Saul. And so, at least for our brothers and sisters' sake, we should want to always obey God because that helps them as well. Another lesson, though, that I think that we can take out of this is do you notice that Samuel is very specific in telling Agag what has happened? Would Samuel have been in the wrong for just right then and there killing Agag and not saying a word? Probably. I don't think there would have been anything technically wrong with that. He wouldn't have been violating a law or anything. But Samuel understood, and I think that this is recorded in the Bible for our benefit as well, that he wanted to make sure that there were no uncertainties in this. He wanted people to know that it wasn't because Agag was an opposing king or a political rival, or we wanted to take their stuff, which Saul actually did with the livestock, and that's part of the reason that God told him to destroy everything, so that wouldn't be something that people accidentally perceived by the conquest here. This was about morality. This is about Agag being a horrible person, a terrible tyrant that murdered people, including children, that fell by his own sword, that he had spilled innocent blood for his own ambition, and because of that, he must be punished. It wasn't a personal grudge. It wasn't a vendetta. It wasn't God playing favorites or anything like that. This man did evil and deserved what he got. And Samuel wanted to make that clear for everybody there listening and for us today as well. A lot of people that are skeptics of the Bible or people that are scoffers, they'll say that uh, the Old Testament God is some kind of brutal tyrant that just wants to increase the size of Israel's land or their influence, and they were basically, the Israelites were using this imaginary God they cooked up as an excuse to justify their wars and, and to increase their wealth, increase their power, so on and so forth. Well, if that's the case, then why is it here when we see somebody that they had apparently things that are worth stealing, according to Saul, that God said, nope, destroy all of it. I want a message to be sent here. That the reason this is happening to them, the reason God's wrath is being poured out upon this people, is because they have acted in contradiction to my will. They have done that which is evil. They have hurt the innocent. Therefore, I will exact judgment upon them. That is the message that God wanted to send. That is the message that Samuel conveys here when he takes up the responsibility of seeing this punishment delved out to Agag. It wasn't about land. It wasn't about power. It wasn't because of racism or the old God is xenophobic or any of these other ridiculous claims that a lot of the modern skeptics will make here. It was because Agag did wrong. And God, being a just God that he is, He had to correct that. And so that's why we see this happening. So ultimately, I think this comes down to how he lived. How we live is important. The choices that we make, that's what matters to God. Not our nationality, not our skill, not our power or wealth or anything like that. What it boils down to is how we live, the choices we make, the way we treat other people, that is what God is primarily concerned with. Agag made bad decisions, and Saul made bad decisions. Which one are we going to be? Are we going to be Agag, somebody that is antagonistic towards God, that does evil and hurts people? Are we going to be Saul that, well, up to this point, really hasn't hurt anybody innocent? I mean, that's going to happen later on. But at this point in Saul's story, Saul's just been disobedient. He hasn't really been acting as a stumbling block to God's will, but he also hasn't been doing the things that God asked him to do. So we could be Agag, or we could be Saul, and if given the choice, I think it'd be better to be Saul. At least we're not acting in open opposition to God's will, in a sense, even though disobedience is acting in opposition to God's will. But in the end, did it really matter to these two? Knowing the end of Saul's story, at the end, did it really matter whether they were openly opposing God or just kind of passively opposing God? Not to God, it didn't. The only person that acts righteously in this story is Samuel, and it's because Samuel has a passion and a desire to make sure to see that God's will is indeed carried out and then takes the initiative to actually go forth and do it. So out of these three choices, if we're going to be anybody, it's best to be Samuel. The person that actively makes sure that God's will is done and tries to act in accordance to God's will, as opposed to just opposing it or just kind of dismissing it and not really doing what God asks us to do. Samuel is the only one in this story that actually comes out on top. Let's be like him. Stay the course, friends. Tactics with Caleb Colquitt, only on News Radio 1440 and NewsRadio1440.com.